looking at the story of the wise men, but as you go there, I want to, you may or may not know, but December is one of those months that has um, just a plethora of, of national observance days uh, or even international observance days. And I was looking it up this week. I'll give you just a, a sampling of them. So December 1st ends up that it is, it's National Pie Day. So I like that day. That's a good, it's one of my favorite, uh, I take off work uh, to eat pie. National Pie Day, December 5th. Uh, International Ninja Day. You didn't see that one coming, did you? That's because if you saw it coming, it wouldn't be Ninja Day. There we go. I got a few more. Here we go. (laughs) December 8th, uh, turns out it is Pretend to be a Time Traveler Day, National Brownie Day, and National Christmas Tree Day. So you have your pick of those things to observe. December 10th, uh, National Dewey Decimal System Day. It's for all the nerds uh, after they pretend to be time travelers two days before. December 16th is officially uh, chocolate-covered anything day. December 18th, (laughs) uh, this is real. Uh, You can find it on nationalday.com. Please don't go there right now. You'll be lost the rest of of the time. Uh, but you can look it up this afternoon. National, uh, December 18th, National Wear a Plunger on Your Head Day. Pretty glad, pretty glad that didn't catch on. Um, uh, Hanukkah, that there, now we're into familiar territory. Hanukkah, uh, this year, it, it, uh, the Jewish Festival of Lights, um, it's a, we don't find it in the Old Testament. It comes um, around 164 B.C., uh, commemorates a miracle. But you find that Jesus is celebrating it in John chapter 10. Um, it's the uh, temple in Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Hanukkah. It is where Jesus famously tells the Jews, I and the Father are one. And um, Hanukkah begins... Uh, There's eight nights of Hanukkah. It begins on December 18th and will conclude on December the 26th. And then for um, some of you, uh, December 23rd, um, uh, Festivus for the Seinfeld fans, Festivus for the rest of us, the special time of year devoted to the airing of grievances. And so, always look forward to that at my house. But we're here this morning to celebrate Christmas, of course. And these Sundays in December, we've been looking at some familiar Christmas stories. Um, experiencing Emmanuel. Um, what does it mean to experience that God is with us? That's been the focus of this Advent series. Advent, this is the season. The word literally means arrival or um, uh, to, to, to burst onto the scene. It, it, it's the first advent, the arrival of Jesus, the long prophesied, the long-awaited Messiah. Advent also has a meaning of, of looking forward to the, to the next coming, the next arrival, the, the next bursting on the scene of Jesus. 
fact, C.S. Lewis defined all of this, uh, captured, he said, hope. It's, it's hope. It's continual looking forward to the eternal world. That's what we remember at the time of Advent. And this describes this hope, this continual looking forward of the eternal world to come. It describes the Magi that we're going to read about this morning. What we find is they're hoping to find the king of the Jews. And what they discover is Jesus, the Son of God. The Magi were looking for, they were were anticipating and had spent their lifetime, arranged their whole life around the arrival of the king of the Jews. And God meets them where they are. He's going to lead them. And miraculously, God leads them to his word, which brings them to his son. So if you would, would you read with me? I want to to read the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 12. And this is how Matthew records it just after he records the birth of Jesus. In some ways, um, he doesn't tell us much about Jesus in this passage. Um, He tells us about how Jesus is experienced by the Magi. In fact, you could say it this way. Tell me that Jesus is a king without telling me he's a king. And that's what this story does. Look at it in verse 2, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they were saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ The Christ was to be born, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had happened, and He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's the word of the Lord. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. 
Father, I, I pray you'd help us this morning to, to see what it looks like. These men that have dedicated their life in search of the true king. And Father, to find this humble scene of a child born to this young couple and Father, how they come and offer their life and their gifts. And how joy is the result and it leads them to worship. And Father, in this also, I pray that like these wise men, that you, you would meet us wherever we are this morning. And that, Father, you would, you would draw us to your word, which in turn draws us to the worship of your Son. So I pray you would do that in us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, we're, we're given this picture of the, of the wise men. And in this first verse here, verse 1, you're introduced to all the characters in the story. You're introduced to, to Jesus, you, you, to, to Herod, and to the Magi, or, or the wise men. Jesus, you find out from chapter 1, just, just the few verses before this, uh, he will be called, the angel says to Gabriel, he will be called Emmanuel, um, God with us, or, or you might could translate it the with us God. God's with us now. And Matthew's giving us a picture here of what it's like when God is with us. And it's this um, picture of a, of a divine invasion. God, God has broken into humanity, physically broken in. There's no neutral response to the coming of Jesus. You see that his presence, it either threatens everything about who you are, or his presence will bring you to your knees in worship and adoration. It's why we have Herod in the story. And not only is Herod the, the king at the time, and presumably known um, by those in the, in the land as the king of the Jews, he reveals to us, Herod, uh, he reveals to us what human nature through sin has become. This uh, sinful human nature and, and what it does when it is confronted with the revelation of God, when it is confronted with the appearing of God. There's a little bit to know about Herod. He was, he was quite a, uh, a historical figure. He, he um, one of the uh, greatest Roman vassals that there were. He was born about 70 years before Jesus. His father, his mother, uh, both, they were, they were loyal to Rome. His mother was actually a princess from Petra. His family had this great loyalty. Um, his father ended up being assassinated. And um, when he was about 30 years old, he, he fled the land. He returned to Rome. He's officially, while he's in Rome, he gets crowned the king of Judea. 
In 39 BC, he returns and essentially regains control of all the land east and west of the Jordan, and he would rule for 33 years. Herod the Great is what he'd be known as. Great because of the things that he did. Great because of the power that he wielded. Great because he was a master builder for significant things, although he built lots of things. One is uh, uh, the Herodium. It's just south of Jerusalem. Built Masada, one of the most well-known fortresses in the world of that day. He restored the Jerusalem, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. It was probably his most magnificent work. The one that always strikes me is he builds a, um, uh, a, a dwelling, a, a castle, a city in, for, for the most part, in the port of Caesarea uh, by the sea on the Mediterranean. And it was a harbor from which Herod and others would sail, you know, to and from Alexandria and Egypt, Rome. Um, it, but the most fascinating thing about it is it was built with a fresh water swimming pool in the middle of the salty sea. He was seeking to defy nature. 115 feet long, 60 feet wide, 8 feet deep. If you want to know where he got the fresh water, he got the fresh water from miles and miles and miles away from the Jordan. Built an aqueduct system all the way across the land to have the water brought to his pool. This was the kind of man Herod was. He became a paranoid tyrant, worried that he was going to lose his kingdom. The, the fortress he built, the Masada, reflects his paranoia. He married 10 women, fathered 15 children. According to Josephus, Herod was so protective of his favorite wife that he instructed the soldiers to kill her if anything were ever to happen to him while he was traveling. So that's, that's one kind of prenup that you can sign. <laughs> he issued two commands to be performed upon his death. One, he said that, uh, he commanded that uh, Jewish elders would be executed upon his death. And this was to ensure that people would be mourning and crying on the day of his funeral. He issued the command to execute his son, Antipor. In fact, Caesar Augustus himself uh, said, it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. That's the man he was. Herod's reaction. It's this raw human nature that, that, that comes out. As, as Herod hears that there is a king that has come, as, as these men have traveled far from the east because they saw the star, and they said, we've come to worship the king whose star has appeared and led us here. Everything about that was threatening to Herod. 
See, if Jesus is the Lord, if Jesus is the king, that means we are not the king. Herod's response to, to, to the center of the universe other than himself, his response is a response of terror and resistance and rebellion and madness. Listen, the reality is most people don't have the luxury that Herod has to, to give action to every rebellious thought that comes to your heart. But make no mistake, the rebellion in Herod's heart is a rebellion that lies in all our heart. He's the outward picture of what's inside every single one of us. That's Herod. And to contrast, you have these other men that show up on the scene. And in Matthew's gospel, it's a little bit surprising that they would show up. And that they reveal, though... They reveal the heart of a sinner. They reveal the heart of those that are outside of the kingdom. That They reveal the heart of those that would have no place before this king. And yet, by grace, who it is that they might become? Who are they? Well, they are probably not kings, despite the song we sing that we three kings of Orient are messes up the rhythm of it when you say we three wise men who are magicians of the east descended likely from those like Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. That would be too long to put in the song. Maybe there's three, maybe there's not three. Traditionally, we say there's three because of the three gifts. They're from either probably Babylon or Persia. The names traditionally are Melchior, Caspar, and Belthazar, but we don't have that from the Scripture. They were searching, though. More in a minute about that. Life as a wise man was not enough for them. Wisdom in and of itself was not enough. Intellect or knowledge was not enough. They needed more than wisdom. And then the story itself, listen, it's a story of, of, of astrology and astronomy. I mean, those things were, uh, went hand in hand back in the day. It's not a story that advocates astrology. It's just giving you a picture of some guys who, who knew there was something more out there and how God leads them. To the answer. They were wise. Not only because they studied the stars, but they studied medicine, philosophies, history. They were wise because they were men who understood the times. See, you're either, you're either looking for your master. You're either looking for the one who is the king of your life, the Lord and Savior. Or you are expending all of your energy to be your own master. You're either looking for your king or you're spending, expending all of your energy to be your own king, to be your own savior. See, these are people who come with worship in their hearts as opposed to Herod who has murder on his mind. You either come in faith or you come in Rebellion, that's the contrast 
of the story. So, so when they show up in verse 2, and, and you know, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw a star, we came to worship. It's a threat that seizes Herod. I think deep down he knew he was a fraud. Fearing everybody will find out the truth of him. In verse 2, it's the only sentence that the Magi speak. Um, the fact that Matthew doesn't record anything else about them or from them, adds to the mystery of who they are and where they're from. I mentioned Numbers chapter 24. If you went back, and we're not going to do it, but if you go back to Numbers chapter 2, uh, I mean chapter 22, 23, and 24, it's the story of Balaam. You know, you know Balaam's donkey. Balaam will speak an article. He'll speak about a star that will rise... It'll come out of Jacob, and, and a scepter will come with it. And so, this is likely the fulfillment of what Balaam says way back in Numbers. And it's interesting that Balaam himself was a magician. He was one of the magi of his day. They've come from an east, the east. They're following a star. They were outsiders. They're Gentiles. They're also foreign in their theology, Yet they're there. So we have to be kind of shocked and a little bit amazed that, that God's grace extended even to them. It may be especially to them. I mean, they're invited to the party of all parties, to, to attend the birth of all births. And, and whatever you think about the Magi, so literally and sincerely following their light, God is great in his kindness to them. See, by putting them in the middle of the Christmas story, in the middle of your nativity scenes, although if we look at the story, it messes up the nativity scene a little bit because they likely are not there in the night of Jesus' birth. They're likely there some 18 months to two years later. But regardless... They're there. They're, they're in the Christmas story. They're, they're, they're dropped right in the middle of it because they're walking illustrations of God's grace. It's like God's saying, I'm, I'm going to show you unloved. I'm going to show you who think you're too far away. I'm going to show you who, who know nothing about me really. I'm going to overwhelm you with my grace. See, what God does is he's going to adapt to the Magi. They're pagan idolaters. Make no mistake about that. These aren't guys who came across a, a track that somebody left in a restaurant, you know, with the four spiritual laws and, the, and how to get to Jesus. They, they did not come across that. They're idolaters. They worship the stars. But God, what he does is he grabs their attention according to the knowledge that they have. And then he draws them to his revelation and then all the way to Christ. And I, I want you to know that's how God still does it today. 
God has the ability to take you wherever you are, to take your friend from wherever they are and whatever knowledge they have and draw them to his revelation. And this then all the way to Christ. The thing about the star, there's a lot to be said about it. Um, uh, let me say pastorally to you without trying to pick a fight. And let me also say my email is todd at bethelbible.com. <laughs> but, but I'm not so sure Christian movies or documentaries are the best place to get our theology. Always. I... Uh, I think there are probably lots of things uh, that could be said about the star and have been said about the star that may or may not be true. Nonetheless, they are fascinating. There are all kinds of flukes in history and moments throughout uh, time that we've recorded things that certainly fall under the category of supernatural. I, I want you to know that this defies all of those things. This is a supernatural event from God. This is God leading some men by an event that I don't believe we have any natural explanation for. It's a mystery. Let me say it this way. When these mysteries come, it's a mystery to be wondered at. It's not a riddle to be solved. That's not why Matthew writes this. It's a mystery to be one. It's, an, it's supernatural, an event from God, the God who created and commanded the star, the one whose greatest majesty is declared by creation. See, what Matthew wants us to see is that his coming always divides people. It's what the gospel, particularly Matthew, will continue to show over and over again. The coming of Jesus divides people. Here we are at the very start of his life, and there's two camps. One of camp of praise and welcome, and the other of hatred and opposition. That's the contrast. And so Herod, wanting to know more about this, and the wise men who only know, hey, there's a star, and we've heard that when the star appears, there's a king that's coming, and we want to worship that king. Herod says, I don't know what you're talking about, but let me call the scribes and the chief priests. Let me call the religious people. And so he does, and in verse 5, they say, well, yeah, we, the, the Scriptures tell us, that the prophets have told us. In Bethlehem of Judea, that's where the Christ is to be born. And then they go on to quote Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, Micah announces, in the land of Judah, there are, um, you're by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And if you went back to Micah and looked at it, you'd see it goes on. They announced, whose coming forth is from old. From ancient days. 
the king to come is ancient. Literally from days of immeasurable time. That's announced 700 years before Jesus is born. It's one of just dozens of prophecies fulfilled at his birth. See, the most disappointing thing that the Magi find is they come and they are looking for the king. When the scriptures asked what the scriptures, when they asked what the scriptures taught about the Messiah, they didn't hesitate. The messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, those were known then. But to the chief priests and the scribes, they, they, there's no impact on them. They didn't even bother to travel five miles down the road to Bethlehem to check out the story. They had knowledge, but they didn't have any faith. You know what a bunch of knowledge is without faith? It, it brings an apathetic indifference. Instead of finding a young king, they, they meet an old king named Herod. Instead of finding a king that would bring peace and prosperity to the Jews, they found a king that was treacherous and exploited the Jews. I'm sure they were as confused as they could be when they left Herod's. The Messiah had been born and nobody seemed to care. The, the king has come and nobody's looking for him. Magi are on the most significant journey of their life. And they show up in the middle of a Jewish community in search of the Jewish king. And they're met with indifference and pride. And Matthew, in telling the story, is begging for us as the readers to decide now, decide now before the rest of the story goes on, how are you to respond? How are you going to respond? Does the announcement of Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator, having come and entered this world, having come from kingdom to kingdom, what does that ignite in you? A desire to worship and adore. Or does the very thought of Jesus coming in and reigning over your life, does, does rebellion rise up? Resistance. Dread. Well, Harry's going to scheme verses 7 and 8, and he He's going to play one side of the fence and say, oh man, I, gosh, w as soon as you find him, come and tell me. I, I want to go worship him too. He, he seeks to deceive the magi. He wants to scheme the child's death. He must feel pretty confident he doesn't send anybody to watch over the magi. But there's so much that Herod doesn't see. In verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
Matthew begins with worship and ends with worship. The, the theological meaning of Matthew's star is that every expectation is fulfilled in Jesus. Not, not only that of the Old Testament, but also the expectation of the whole natural world. Here is the world king whom all await. Despised astrologers. That's what they are. Pagan idolaters. They have nothing but their idols to lead them to Israel. I want you to picture this. They're idol worshipers who worship the stars. They have nothing but their idols to lead them. And it leads them to Israel, and Israel are the people who have the word of God. And when this word is heard by both groups, it's the pagans who end up following God's word. And it's the religious people who pay no attention. Outsiders believe the word, insiders ignore it. When people are drawn, um, when, they're, when they're drawn to and they, and they find and worship God's Messiah, his Christ, his son, they also find themselves wanting to bring their finest resources, all that they have. This is where Christmas giving has its origin, the first gift giver's God. And for human gift givers are magi. The believer's first response to Christ is giving themselves to give. The gift's gold, the gold's fit for a king. The king in baby's clothes was there. Frankincense was in constant use by the priest in the temple, ultimate, uh, the ultimate priest. The one who was to make final reconciliation, it was the baby that laid before them. Myrrh was used to embalm the dead. The man born to be king was the man born to die. The three gifts, you see who he is. What he came to do and what it cost him. And then the joy came from faith in the revelation of truth. Notice in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew could have just used one word and say rejoice. When they found Jesus, they rejoiced. But he uses four words. Rejoiced, exceedingly, great, joy. At the birth of Christ, we have God entering in human history and human flesh to save him physically and spiritually for the glory of God. Our life is at stake based upon the choice we make. So I think there are a lot of people who want the feeling of Christmas a few weeks out of the year and spend the rest of their time following the world in their life. 
Here's the definition of a life that ends up being marginal, having set out on a journey for the eternal king and settle for the soul-killing substitutes that the world offers. Saying it, there are a lot of people like that that sit in churches every Sunday. The journey began in search of the king. The journey began with this great hope of, of Advent to come, the, the bursting into to history, the second coming of Jesus. And yet somewhere along the way, you've settled for all the soul-killing substitutes that the world offers. A life that is exceedingly joyful and full of great joy. Jesus says it in John 15, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's not settling for what the world offers. Your life leads you to worship and adoration of Jesus who's come. One writer speaks about this. He said, it would not be fully gracious of Jesus to simply increase my joy to its final limit and leave me short of his. But my capacity of joy, they're, they're confined. My capacity of joy, it's limited. So what Christ does is he not only offers himself as the divine object of my joy, but he pours his capacity for joy into me so that I can enjoy him with the very joy of God. That's grace. Verse 12, they are warned in a dream and they set out on a different journey. They, they don't go back the way they came and this is what happens when you see Jesus. You worship Jesus. You're, the direction of your life changes. So, so why does Matthew include this? Let me answer it this way. He's trying to show us what Christmas says about the wisdom of that age and the wisdom of any age. The wise men, they, they were the elite. They were the intellectuals. They were the experts. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that this, where's the wise one of the age? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this world? Has not God shown the foolishness of the wisdom of this world for the wisdom of this world? Could not by wisdom find out God. Therefore, God has been pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the gospel. The star was sufficient to begin the journey. The wise men needed the truth of Scripture to take them all the way. So there are people in our life that have begun the journey, people that have not come all the way to Scripture. And I am telling you, the church's offer to the world is not our opinions and our ideas, our view of politics. What we have to offer the world is the Scriptures. Those in the world can only come so far. They need the truth of Scripture to take them all the way. They had to go to the Word of God. It had to be revealed to them. That's the thing the wisdom of the world doesn't want to acknowledge, but it's true. 
Romans 1, Paul says, unaided reason can look at the world and see the beauty of creation, and we can know there's a creator. But that unaided reason can't find the creator on its own. The creator has come and revealed himself. He has to open the door. He shows the way. That's the thing about Christmas. God comes to us. He comes to you. He appears to you. He comes at you. You don't find God. He reveals himself. You can know enough to know, listen, I need something. There's a creator. There's a need. But there must be a faith. And God has come to you and his son. In the fourth century, there was a guy named John Chrysostom. He's known in the history of the church as the greatest preacher of the early church. Maybe the greatest preacher of the, of the church, period. They called him, and, and evidently back then this was a good thing. This was, a, this was the highest compliment someone could say about somebody back then. They called him the golden mouth. At his funeral, the bishop of Constantinople said, Oh, John, your life was filled with sorrow, but your death was glorious. Your grave is blessed and your reward is great by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, O oh, graced one, having conquered the bounds of time and place. It's a great epitaph. It's a great eulogy. Chrysostom wrote and spoke some of the most beautiful words about the incarnation of Jesus. He says this, The invisible and the eternal nature did not hesitate to take on the weakness of the flesh on our behalf. The Son of God, who is God of the universe, is born a human being in the flesh. He permits himself to be placed in a manger. And the heavens are within the manger. He's kept in a cradle, a cradle that the world cannot hold. He is heard in the voice of a crying infant. This is the same one whose voice the whole world would tremble in the hour of his passion. Thus he is the one. The God of glory and the Lord of majesty whom as a tiny infant, the Magi recognize. It is he who, while a child, was truly God and King eternal. To him Isaiah pointed, saying, For us, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Friends of peace. What do you call him this morning? Is he Lord and Savior? The king you worship and adore? Or is he the one that threatens everything you're striving after? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would take these words 
that your disciple and the apostle Matthew recorded in this story that seems so strange and foreign to just appear is the first encounter in Matthew's gospel of those who would come to lay eyes on Jesus. And yet, Father, what we realize is Matthew at the very beginning of this gospel is presenting us with a choice. Will we worship or will we rebel? Will we come in a door or will we find ourselves threatened? Father, I pray that as your word this morning has revealed your son, that your spirit would work in our minds and in our hearts. And drive us to our knees. And Father, bring about a worship that comes from our heart. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.